Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. I'm Ben. And I'm Sarah. Ben, your voice is very velvety smooth today. Is that what you call this? Yeah. Because it's... You've called in to the Scream Scene hotline. (laughs) Well... It's because my throat's a little bit worn out from hooting and hollering. I don't know how yours isn't, to be honest. I think you were doing more more hooting and hollering than I was. Last night we went out to a couple of friends' birthdays, and uh, they did a joint birthday party at All Real Canadian Wrestling. It's not what it's called. It's just real Canadian wrestling, (laughs) not all real. (laughs) 100% real. Canadian Um, muscles and sweat. The first time we've ever been to a pro wrestling... Well, the first time I've ever been to a pro wrestling show. I've never been to a pro wrestling show. Okay, so it's the first time we've ever been to a pro wrestling show. Uh, It's Real Canadian Wrestling was the promotion. And uh, they held it in the, uh, the Legion Hall downtown here in Calgary. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Yes, I enjoyed all of the muscles and spandex. (laughs) Um, there was a lot of really fun matches. There was a career or mask match where, uh, it was, um, Benjamin Franklin versus, uh, the luchador, was it Jose? Something like that. The guy wasn't dressed up as Benjamin Franklin. Yeah, it wasn't, that wasn't his, like, that was his name, but his gimmick was just that he was, like, very plain. Yeah, he he looked like a gym teacher. Yeah, he was just a muscle guy with hair. That would, I would have paid to see that, though. Like sure. Benjamin yeah, Franklin if he'd really gone like for, a... for yeah, if he'd gone for like a, a full thing, but it was just his name. But the he was up against this luchador uh, who I think was named Jose, and basically if Ben Franklin won, Jose was going to be unmasked, and if Jose won, Ben Franklin had to retire from the company. Yeah. And he got Jose's mask off during the match, but of course Jose had a second mask on under the first mask. And won, so Benjamin Franklin had to leave the company. And then with the final match... Oh, God. Yeah, they, man. Oh, boy, they broke so many things. There were <laughs> so many props. The, uh, the fi- I think someone was bleeding at the end. The, um, the final match was two tag teams uh, versus each other. It was a... Um, table. Y- well, there was... Yes, there was more than just the, the No, but table, I mean, like, it sure. was called a table match, right? Yeah, definitely, like, a lot of stuff going on. They, it, so it was uh, Top Talent was one of the tag teams, uh, and they were the guys we were cheering for. And Youngblood was Je- the other uh, dude. Yeah, on Jesse, team. Jesse Youngblood and Heavy Metal are the two the two guys. And then they were up against I think it was Christian Strife, and then the big guy was the Monster Abyss, the guy with the mask, oh, okay, with the anarchy A's all over him. That was the Monster Abyss. Sure. And like it was really hard to tell people's names, to be honest. <laughs> I feel like you probably looked them up after. <laughs> Listen. And so they had a table that they broke, but they also had a door. They had like a a plank with mouse traps on it. Yep, that they threw a guy into. Uh, they had like a bag of what do you call those? Like just little pins, tacks. basically tacks. 
They had a bag of gummy bears. Well, I think the idea is that, like, one of them was going for the bag of tacks and then, like, emptied it and it was gummy bears. So it was yeah. like, oh, he didn't And, get like, it. The, the match came out into the audience. Which um, was insane. And there was just... They broke a chair. Oh, yeah, yeah. They, they yeah, he was... They, he had they, a steel they did, chair. They did the steel chair On stuff. a man bun. Yeah. And, like, it just broke. Yeah, they, it was pretty intense. So the, the final match was definitely really entertaining, was really... They built up to it well, and it was a good finale. Yeah, it, oh. And like, you were... One, like, I think, oh, whoa. You you started the night, and you were like, you know, I was saying to you, like, Sarah, you have to, like, cheer for the faces and boo at the heels. And you were like, no, I'm going to cheer for all of them. I want them they're all to feel proud. They're all my They're all my sweet babies. And then, like, by the end of the night, you were like, fuck them up, kill them! <laughs> Well, to be fair, you got by the, the bloodlust in you. By the time we got to that final match, where like they were breaking doors and chairs, I was yelling like, "He's had enough! Just let him go! Just let him go!" <laughs> well, it was yeah. The last match maybe was a little much for you. I think it, it definitely at one point crossed the line because you weren't you were having a hard time with like the 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 kayfabe versus reality of it. No, I, the dude was bleeding at the end. Sure, but he's fine. He needed fine. help off the ring and he's onto fine. the stage. He's like, fine. But he, he was bleeding. Sure, but he's fine. I don't know, man. <laughs> One of them, like, I think he broke his arm. Like, that was that was kayfabe. That was kayfabe. He, what, are you, what are you saying? What is kayfabe? That's, like, because wrestling's fake? I know wrestling's fake. So kayfabe's like the, the, the fiction. The fiction of, like, oh, these guys have a grudge, and, like, this guy's... Is it an, an acronym? No, it's just a word. Never heard it before. Yeah, well, it's, like, you used to never hear it, because you weren't supposed to talk about that it was fake, right? Kayfabe's the idea of... It's not just the fiction, it's the idea of pretending the fiction is real. Like, that, the, that like, traditionally pro wrestlers, like, stayed in character all the time, and, yeah. like, all that kind of stuff, right? That's kayfabe. Okay. Yeah. Well, anyways, what are we watching today, Ben? Uh, you know, back to the reason why we hit record on the recorder. Pro wrestling, Sarah. Yeah, so anyways, my throat is really worn out from, from cheering, so that's why I sound like this. That's the point of that discussion. So today we're watching a Poverty Row horror B-movie. It's called Condemned to Live. Which I love. I love this title. It's from 1935. So this is a, a Poverty Row picture from a company called Invincible Pictures, which was founded by Maury Cohen in the early 1930s. Invincible, early on, teamed up with George Batchelor's Chesterfield Pictures. <laughs> pictures to watch in your Chesterfield. <laughs> For those of you who aren't from Canada, Chesterfield is... A sofa. Yeah, or a, a couch. couch. Yeah. Invincible and Chesterfield would share personnel and equipment between the two of them, because they were both, you know, poor companies. So the idea was, like, we're going to have one company's worth of crew and gear and just share them. Makes sense. And they were often referred to as C&I. In 1933, C&I made a deal with Universal Pictures to use their sets, film, and recording equipment, and C&I would feed B-movies to Universal for Universal to program alongside their A pictures when distributing out to theaters. Was it traditional to have an A and a B picture paired? Yeah, like that's how your Saturday matinees would work. That's really where the A and B 
picture distinction comes from is you'd go to see a double feature and the a picture is you know the top ticket item and it's got the higher budget and it's really what you're there to see but the b picture is also on the ticket and is the the cheaper movie it's getting into theaters because it got paired with that a picture basically okay um in this case, you know, the deal was Universal wouldn't have to produce their own B pictures. CNI would do it for them, and in exchange, get access to Universal sets and stuff. So, Condemned to Live, for instance, uses sets from Bride of Frankenstein, uh, Hunchback of Notre Dame, and The Vampire Bat, uh, <laughs> along with costumes from Great Expectations and The Mystery of Edwin Drood. So, in early 1935, uh, Cohen, the owner of Invincible Pictures, had an emergency appendectomy, and while he was in the hospital, rumors began circulating around Hollywood that he and Bachelor were looking to sell CNI and just become producers for the major studios. Get out of this small fry business, basically. Sure. So, enter Herbert J. Yates to our story. He is the owner of Consolidated Film Industries, which was a development and processing lab that serviced the Poverty Row producers. Uh, the major studios owned their own film mm -hmm. development labs. Yeah, we've kind of talked about that in the past, where like that's how they were able to process dailies and get things edited at a way faster rate. Yes. By the mid-30s, the Depression was making continued competition with the majors very difficult for Poverty Row, and their lack of cash meant that they couldn't pay Yates for their film processing and development costs. By 1935, six Poverty Row companies were in debt to Consolidated Film Industries. So Yates proposed that they either all merge as one united studio under his leadership, or he'd foreclose on their outstanding lab bills. Dang. So, six of the largest Poverty Row producers, including Invincible Pictures, merged. So there was Monogram Pictures, which was the largest of the six. They produced House of Mystery. The bottom of the list. Which is the bottom of the list, that's right. Mascot Pictures, which had the best gear and the best technical know-how among their staff. And they had also just signed Gene Autry, the singing cowboy, uh, to oh. their studio. Majestic Pictures, uh, which produced The Vampire Bat. Mm -hmm. Liberty Pictures and then uh, Invincible and Chesterfield. So those were the six. The merged entity was called Republic Pictures and was undoubtedly stronger together than they were apart. Once they were all joined, they had an experienced staff, a company of experienced actors, uh, as well as full production, development, and distribution systems, uh, if not exhibition, because that's what the majors had. In exchange for merging, each individual unit maintained independence of production. Uh, however, they all now had higher budgets to work with because they were pooling their resources. Mm -hmm. Republic was still considered Poverty Row, but because they joined together in this way, it really could compete with the majors almost on their level. They, however, still maintained a specialization in the kind of subject matter that Poverty Row Studios normally specialized in. So Republic Pictures specialized in B-movies, westerns, and serials. Republic serials were generally considered the best example of the movie serial form. Okay. When people sort of archetypally 
refer to cereals. You'll often hear them refer to Republic cereals um, as sort of an archetypal way to do that. Very famously, that's how uh, Ozymandias refers to them at the end of Watchmen. He says, I'm not a Republic cereal villain. Sure. So by, by sort of staying in the wheelhouse of what they knew how to do, they were able to produce those at a level that competed with A pictures from the majors. Uh, the other thing that they did was Republic intentionally stayed very clear of any fights with the production code, you know, really making sure to not even go anywhere near that. And all of these things ended up making the company uh, very successful and profitable. Uh, after the merger, Maury Cohen would indeed leave Invincible and Republic uh, for a contract at RKO. And Condemned to Live was one of the last independent Invincible films produced under his auspice, though released after the merger. Okay. The director of the film is Frank Strayer, whose work we've enjoyed before in The Monster Walks and The Vampire Bat. I mean, The Monster Walks was kind of bad, but it had, like, a couple of nuggets in there. The Vampire Bat was pretty all right with a couple nuggets of, like, not so good everywhere. Mm. So really, he's he's getting better? Sure. He's directed 13 films in the two years since we last saw him, uh, including a film called The Ghost Walks, <laughs> uh, which was a 1934 sort of old dark house murder mystery film for CNI. Very much like a bump in the night, what was that, who's the murderer, oh, it's this guy, you know, kind of thing. Not, by the point that film was made in 34, not really horror anymore. Like, so that's why we didn't watch it? Yeah, it's, it's a murder mystery slash comedy. You know, if it had been made three or four years earlier, it might have still been something we might have considered horror, but by 1934 it was not. Yeah. Speaking of The Monster Walks, uh, there's a returning actor from that film in here. Uh, that's Misha Auer. He was the, the villain yeah. in The Monster Walks. Um, he's still yet to have his 1936 star-making turn in the film My Man Godfrey, which would turn him into one of the most popular comedians in Hollywood, this is still the point in his career where he's still, you know, slumming it, basically. Yeah, well, everyone has to kind of pay their dues. The star of Condemned to Live is Ralph Morgan, who was a veteran actor of stage and screen by this point. He was born in 1883, and he was initially a lawyer, uh, but he <laughs> left that behind to become an actor in 1905. He first starred in films in 1915, and became a founding charter member of the Screen Actors Guild and its first president in 1933, uh, and would serve in that role again from 1938 to 1940. He's also the older brother of Frank Morgan, who's most famous to modern audiences as being the Wizard of Oz in The Wizard of Oz. Oh, <laughs> that's cool. So how are we watching this film? Well, Condemned to Live is, unsurprisingly, in the public domain. What? So uh, it's uh, up on YouTube uh, as part of our Scream Scene playlist. Cool. So listeners can find that playlist at our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will have survived Condemned to Live. All right. See you on the other side, everybody. <laughs> Thank you. 
uh, time to wake up. Uh, welcome back to Scream Scene. We hmm. just finished watching Condemned to Live from 1935, directed by Frank Strayer. More like Condemned to Watch This. Yeah. 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 Oh, it was so bad. Yeah, this was not good. No. Mm. I nearly swooned because it was so bad. I've never heard that word used so many times. And so frequently. Yeah, and just to mean, like, to to not be saying, like, oh, I'm swooning over someone, like, romantically is, like, a metaphor, but just to literally mean, like, I passed out. Yeah. Right? Yeah. As a synonym for faint, but just never using the word faint, just always using swoon. Like, multiple times in the same scene. Mm-hmm. As if it was a standard word that everyone said all the time. What's the, what's Condemned to Live about, Sarah? Well, this is a movie that does include the phrase condemned to live in the actual dialogue. So uh, whenever that happens, I always lean over to Ben to say, that's the name of the movie. (laughs) But the film opens in what's later described as darkest Africa, Mm -hmm. where a woman is in labor in a cave with uh, two people with her, uh, her husband and a family friend of theirs. Man, let me tell you, when I'm colonializing in darkest Africa, I always bring my nine months pregnant wife along with me into the jungle. Yeah. Oof. So they've taken refuge into this cave because the natives are drumming and might attack, you know, racism. And the reason why the natives won't go into this cave is because it's infested with vampire bats. Which, I, I just, my whole problem with this movie. Okay, there's a lot of problems I have with this movie. But vampire bats are from South America. They don't exist in Africa. They don't exist in Europe. And we didn't make up, like, the myth of the vampire based on, like, a superstition about these bats. We called vampire bats when we discovered them vampire bats based on the pre-existing vampire myth from Europe. Yeah. I mean, like, these places do have bats, just not specifically the vampire bat. Yeah, and you wouldn't have, like, superstitions about, like, they they got the cause and effect wrong here. And I'm just, I just wanted to complain about it. So as the two guys are off uh, talking about how this place is filled to the brim, just bursting with vampire bats, we see a single one uh, land on the lady. Uh, She screams, and we see them run over to her and, like, wrestle the vampire bat off of her. Fade to black. Many years later, it's some German town. In some past. Yeah, uh, who knows when or where, But it's, really. it's not here, and it's not now. <laughs> and everything is great, and the people are good, but none as good as Professor Paul Christen. Because his last name is Nina Christian. Clever, writers. <laughs> Despite everything being fairly good in this town, darkness has invaded with these mysterious murders plaguing them. Uh, These murders occur in the night, and because it occurs at night when there is no light, the villagers conclude that it must be a bat. A vampire bat. Yeah, a bat. To these villagers, the idea that a bat is ripping people's throats open and then dragging them into, like, a cave outside of the town is more reasonable than anything else. Yeah. So, like Ben says, uh, the victims are found in a cave drained of blood. 
Professor Kristen and his hunched back servant Zan suspect a bat as well, and everyone does except for this one guy named David. David also happens to be the romantic rival to Professor Kristen over his childhood friend Marguerite. There's a lot of drama in this movie over whether Marguerite actually loves Professor Kristen or just admires and respects him. David going after her, trying to convince her that, no, you just respect him, you actually love me. Marguerite's concern over her, her father, who's been given only a few months to live, and that's just said and then never mentioned again. <laughs> and these headaches and vagueness that come over Professor Kristen every so often. This malady causes him to swoon and black out, uh, coincidentally, as these murders seem to happen. In one case, we see him walking through the woods, and his lantern goes out, so he's in total darkness, and he just suddenly starts, like, snarling and crunching up his hands into claws. There's no transformation, but we're supposed to take this as he's turn into what they keep calling a fiend. Not actually a vampire, no werewolf thing, nothing. It's just him suddenly being like, meh. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, I guess you're right that it's supposed to be claws and snarling. I just sort of, it just sort of looked like his hands were arthritic and he was like panting heavily like he had asthma. Yeah. His old friend, um, and also foster father, which again, they just kind of put that out there and never mention it again, um, Dr. Anders shows up because of Professor Kristen's and Marguerite's wedding announcement. But Dr. Anders doesn't really do anything. His presence allows the mystery to be solved by someone in the film rather than just the audience because we've seen what the mystery is. Mm -hmm. Like, it's solved for us, but someone in the film actually has to do it, and Anders is just brought in to do it. Yeah, and he's he's known Kristen long enough that he has all the exposition about Africa and stuff. Yeah. So the film comes to its climax, finally, with Anders convincing Kristen to leave town, go get rest, go get help, but first to call off the wedding with Marguerite. As Kristen goes to go tell Marguerite this, we cut back and forth from Kristen going to go talk to Marguerite, and Anders uh, cornering Zan, the servant, to kind of explain why Zan always seems to be around uh, when these attacks happen. Um, turns out Zan, he's, his life is indebted to the professor, uh, so he's covering up these crimes and taking the bodies to this cave um, to try to protect his good name, also leading the townsfolk to think Zan is the fiend. Inevitably, as you can kind of expect, Kristen, as the fiend, attacks Marguerite, Zan makes his way to the house and jumps in in time to stop Marguerite from being murdered, just as the townsfolk also break in and go, aha, see, told you Zan was the fiend all along. So Zan runs away, the mob chases him, and between that chase scene, we cut back and forth to yet another exposition scene with Kristen, Anders, and David now all talking exposition again. Eventually, we follow Zan and the mob to the cave. Kristen calls everyone off, explains again what the story is, and then, because he's been condemned to live, he, uh, he jumps into a cave hole to kill himself. And Zan, uh, distraught, 
runs and dives off after him. And the movie ends, but not before we get to see David and Marguerite get together. The end. And it's an hour and five minutes. There's so much just like, oh, Professor Kristen, he's so good and so kind. And they say that, like, the exact same words repeatedly. Ugh. The story should take about a half hour at most. And they've expanded it out into this hour and five minutes. And the the padding that's done is not good. It's so tedious and repetitive that you feel like you've been watching the movie for five hours. Yeah. You know, an entire scene in this movie can just be three characters repeating the same piece of information to each other over and over and over again. But, like, in some cases, the information that's repeated isn't even, like, plot information. No! It's, yeah, David and I have been friends since childhood. Or, like, about the... Fl- like, I remember there was this long conversation about her roses... Yeah. And that she grows in her garden that, like, went on for ten minutes. And how she makes the best cordial in the town. Yeah, and, like, oh, boy, Sarah. So, with this filler, obviously the pacing is bad. The dialogue is is bad. Yeah. The cinematography is boring. Yeah, it's just very pedestrian. Which um, is strange because, like, you could tell in, in some points they were trying to do something neat with the light. Because, like, the whole idea of the murders happen at night in the dark, so if we just keep everything lit, we'll be safe. That's the idea of the townsfolk. And when they said this, I turned to Ben and said that this is all a conspiracy by the candle makers to (laughs) increase sales. But when Kristen is about to turn into the fiend with Marguerite, we get less and less light as Marguerite's turning off lights for don't worry about it, she's a little dumb... And I feel like maybe they had the idea of, like, what if we use this thing of, like, there needs to be light to have, like, a plot reason for the really stark black and white lighting that you see in horror films. Except they didn't do that. Well, they didn't have the skill to pull it off. Like, it is a neat... It's a neat idea. I actually think there's a few neat ideas in this movie, but nobody making this movie had the talent or skill to achieve these neat ideas. Like, as the lights go less and less, it's not, you know, you don't end up with this, like, cool, stark, dark horror movie lighting so much as you just end up with, like, muddy blackness and you can't really see anything that well. It's like when it's nighttime during a stage play. Yeah. Right? Like, there's still plenty of light to see things. There's so much bad about this movie that, like, it's 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 hard to know where to start because it's, it's all pretty bad. The thing I noticed about the dialogue is it felt to me like the screenwriter was very eager to make everyone sound old-timey. Yeah. Um, as if they were these period people. So the dialogue is more wooden than an armoire. Like, it's, it's stilted and it's full of these awkward attempts at flowery language. Like, everybody talks like they're from, like, a mid-19th century novel... Oh, my child, if only your salutations had not been... Like, it's it's just... Like, she must have had a thesaurus on hand by her desk when she wrote this due to, the, like, the... How unnaturally everyone talks in this movie. Like, you just are sitting there going, like, no one... No one, no one talks like this. This is... 
And then you, you add to that how they all talk in circles in order to keep that running time going, and it just makes any dialogue seen in this movie hell to get through. And the secret is, all the scenes in this movie are dialogue scenes. Yeah. There's, there's no action. This movie's dedicated to nothing happening. Who is the writer? Uh, Karen Wolf. With, with a name like that, she she could have had a great career in horror. Clearly, clearly not skilled for it, though. Yeah, I, I don't know anything else about her. I don't know anything else that she wrote. But, like, this feels like an attempt to... It feels like an attempt at high brownness by someone who only has, like, a very surface-level understanding of what makes something highbrow. Yeah. And maybe that wouldn't be so bad if the actors were up to it, but they are not. No. No one's really memorable or enjoyable to watch. Misha Auer? Yeah, he's okay as the hunchback, but he's he's just doing Dwight Fry. Yeah, but I mean, like, out of everyone in the movie, sure. like, he was selling it the most. Yeah, everybody else is just kind of there. They're you know. there to be paid. Yeah, they're not aggressively bad, but it's just like the lighting and the directing. It's just kind of there. Sufficient. Yeah, sufficient. Like, I I, I love that Ralph Morgan's idea of being scary is, is walking around going, <gasps> like, oh my god. Yeah. yeah, it's weird how it's like, you know, he trans, quote-unquote, transforms uh, at night. You always get these shots of the moon, so it's like, oh, are they doing a werewolf type of deal? But it's like started with vampire mm-hmm. bats, and then we don't even get any kind of transformation. Yeah. So and it's and and also with like the way the mob chases after Zan, it feels like the vampire bat, mm-hmm. but it also feels like werewolf of London. Well, like the they go into this cave, and then there's the the pit that they jump into, and I swear that's the same. It is pit from Vampire Bat. It is. The mechanics of the story don't make a lot of sense. Like, the story might be interesting if it had any actual desire to tell itself. But there's way more focus on, like, these romantic subplots and these little bits of business between the characters than actually, like, depicting the horror of the situation, which could have had potential in a movie that had involved, like, some talent behind the scenes. But, like... Even in front of the scenes. Yes. Like, the the central idea of, like, oh, I'm turning into this murderer against my own will and I can't remember it and this sort of stuff. Like, that's a good idea for horror, but... But it's also been done because it's like Jekyll and Hyde. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's so confused because he's not quite a vampire. He's not quite a werewolf. He's not really quite anything. Whether it's even supernatural isn't really there or not like it could just be like he's got a psychological condition and the way it's explained in the movie is so (laughs) batshit to use a phrase so the idea is supposed to be that this african vampire bat because it attacked his mother when she was pregnant with him in africa he's been born well, so, like, his mom dies from that attack from the vampire bat. Right, right. Um, but then he's still born. Mm-hmm. And then that when we're getting this exposition, this is when we get the, you see, you're condemned to live. Yeah. Um, and also, like, somehow his dad died during this incident as well. Sure. Um, and the reason, like, the, 
Anders is like, yeah, as I was raising you, I was watching for any kind of sign of like you terribleness, a vampire, yeah. and you were fine. So I thought you were fine, and the reason it's coming up now is because you're overworked and tired. Yeah, that's the actual explanation. He he he's a. <laughs> He's, like, because when he attacks people, he does, like, rip at their throats and stuff. Like, he's only psychologically a vampire, right? Yeah, like, he's yeah. attacking people at night and, and attacking their throats, but it's not like he needs blood to live, and it's not like he sleeps in a coffin at night or anything. So it's just this psychological condition, and the cause is your mom died from a vampire bat attack in Africa, slash, you're overworked and exhausted. So, like, this should be the end result of every grad student, I guess. <laughs> like, the cure for vampirism in this movie is, like, go on a vacation somewhere nice. Yeah. And, like, take some, like, me time. Like, do some self-care, and you won't be a vampire <laughs> anymore. It's, it's, it's... Which is always, like, I, which is why I don't really get why he jumps into the cave. Right, because then at the end it's like, okay, yeah, so Zan wasn't the fiend, it's not David, it's not whatever. It was me, Professor Kristen, the most respected and beloved person in the town, so I guess I have to kill myself now. (sighs) And I feel like, like, maybe, maybe you could be like, well, because they're upper class, and reputation is everything. He couldn't live with the tarnisher of his reputation. And it's like, then show me that that's a thing. Like, Well, they do say that, like, he's... Like, ludicrously moral, right? It's repeated over and over again. Like, that's the reason why no one can believe it's him, is because, like, he's such a good person. So it's probably just the idea of, like, the knowledge that he killed these people is too much for him to bear or whatever. But, like, the idea of doing, like, a a vampire-y kind of thing, but we're sympathetic to the vampire, and it's like, I don't know. It could have been interesting if it wasn't just bad. Yeah. Just a terrible, like, bunch of cliches thrown together, and if all the characters weren't just blockheads. Yeah, it was just... I feel like we could riff on this forever. Is there anything else you want to mention that was, like, kind of interesting? No. No? Not really. It's it's boring, it's tedious, it's a trial to sit through, it's filled with insufferable characters, it has an intense avoidance of anything resembling tension or suspense. Like, it does cross-cutting between, like... The mob, and then this, and then that, which should, in a movie, the point of that is to, like, build up, like, the pace and the rhythm and the tension, and here it actually somehow slows everything, everything down. down. The poor editor was like, I'll try my best, dude. Yeah. You're fucked up in filming. There's only so much I can do in post. It's the horror film equivalent of erectile dysfunction. That's what this movie is. Sure. Like, Like, it, 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 it wants to be a horror movie, but it just can't, just can't get it up. Well, that just got put into our listeners' ears. That's nice. <laughs> it's bad. Yeah. Do you want to move into ranking? Mm-hmm. What were you thinking? Uh, so there's 60 films on the list, so I figured uh, somewhere around number 61. Really? You think this is worse than House of Mystery? Yeah, I mean, they're both really bad, Sarah, but I actually had more fun watching House of Mystery. House of Mystery had dudes in, like, ape suits going around, like, a mansion it was dumb and it was bad, but I did have a lot more fun with it than this movie, which is dumb and bad and takes itself way too seriously for how dumb and bad it is. We had a really good discussion with House of Mystery having just done our special on the Hollywood production code mm. and how the code kind of led to House of Mystery's problems. Mm-hmm. 
Um, whereas this film just, I don't, I don't think, <laughs> I, I, I studied English literature in school. I can bullshit kind of any kind of argument. Uh, I don't think I can do that here. I don't know what they were really going for here. Like, you know, to me it all comes to the writer because the cast, the director, the crew were all just kind of, you know, semi-competent people here for a day's work. But like, what is this script that it's like? It really feels like it's trying to do period gothic horror. It just doesn't have any understanding of what makes that work. Yeah. <sighs> Even if that was in the original script, that didn't get translated at all. So, like, something got lost in translation. But, like, there's no... Like, that feels weird to say because it's not like it's being translated across different languages. It's just someone didn't communicate something very well. I don't know. It's like watching a monkey try to type. Like, you can, <sighs> you can see what they're kind of trying to go for, like the atmosphere and the periodness and all this kind of stuff. They just don't have the... They don't have what it takes to pull it off. So it all comes off like watching children go around in their parents' clothes you know, play acting at being adults with the way everyone's going around trying so hard to sound like they're these erudite Victorians or whatever they're supposed to be. Yeah. I'm good with uh, ranking it at 61. Yeah, I've never not enjoyed myself more for a movie on this list, so I feel like bottom of the list is kind of where it has to go. Sure. I mean, I was thinking about The Monster Walks, which is Strayer's other film. Mm-hmm. I mean, that one we were kind of, like, goofing on how often they repeat the same thing mm -hmm. back and forth. I, yeah, I don't know. The Monster Walks was still early enough. You know, it was a 1931, 32. I think. 32. It was early enough that we could cut it some slack. Sure. And what's, the thing about this movie is it's a lot like The Vampire Bat, where we're in... You know, which is another Strayer film, mm -hmm. right? Where we're in a small village, there's murders happening, people think it might be a vampire, uh, and then it turns out it's something kind of else. Dwight Fry's character in that movie versus Misha Auer's character in this, who both end up going down a pit in a cave by, you know, what I assume is the coast of California. And, you know, there's some highly trusted scientist in the town who turns out to actually be the bad guy. Like, it's it's a different variation on the, the same themes in The Vampire Bat, and the big difference between the two movies, other than Condemned to Live's script is bad, is that The Vampire Bat had Lionel Atwell, Dwight Fry, and Faye Ray. Yeah. And this movie has Ralph Morgan, who's no Lionel Atwell, Misha Auer, who's no Dwight Fry, and... The chick who is some chick. Yeah, the actress playing Marguerite who could not be more of the human equivalent of wallpaper. That's actually kind of mean. <laughs> uh, but that's her acting. Yeah. So entering the list at number 61 yeah. is Condemned to Live from 1935, directed by Frank Strayer. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you will find links to other episodes, you will find the playlist for the films, and you'll also find an appeals box where you can submit suggestions, concerns, as well as appeals. If you feel like we've ranked something in the wrong spot, whether that should be higher or lower, message us over Tumblr or email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com. 
let us know what you think and uh, where you think some things should be ranked instead. You can also complain to us on Twitter at underscore Scream Scene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. You can find it pretty much on any podcasting app that you use through our RSS feed. A great way to support the show is by leaving us a review and a rating on iTunes. That helps other people find the show more easily. You can also just let your friends know about us. Word of mouth is, generally speaking, the traditional way that podcast audiences grow. So if you know somebody who's into horror movies or classic Hollywood or um, cultural history, you know, anyone who fits in that wheelhouse, uh, let them know about our podcast. A more tangible way you can support the show is through our Patreon. Look us up at patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast, and you can become a patron for as little as a dollar a month. Patrons at the $5 level get access to bonus audio, and $10 patrons get a horror story written by myself once a month. Our current goal is to get up to $150 coming in per month, and once we unlock that goal, we will be able to do monthly specials about horror-adjacent movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, Clue, What We Do in the Shadows, Aliens, yeah. uh, and anything of that sort. Uh, so help us reach that goal so we can, so we can do some really awesome movies. Mm-hmm. That's patreon.com slash podcast. What are we watching next week, Ben? Well, next week, Sarah, it's another Republic Pictures horror oh. B-movie. Uh, it stars famous silent film director Eric Von Stroheim. Stars? Yep, okay. in the lead. Uh, and starring alongside him is Dwight Fry. Okay. It's The Crime of Dr. Crespi. I wonder who Dr. Crespi is. And what was his crime? Well, see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye.